This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 188th episode of the podcast, and today we're going to be talking about natural disasters, specifically flooding national parks and how fly fishers have to deal with it and, more importantly, think about it. But before we get to that, I did want to mention that we are two weeks away from another Accusations podcast. Every 10 episodes, I take reader and listener feedback, whether it be through emails or social media chirps, and I interact with those things. And so if you have a question about something that you've heard or just have about fly fishing in general, a comment about something that you've noticed in the fly fishing culture or something that you've read on the website, or if you have an accusation, you want to take me to task for something. And I have a feeling that there's a chance that something that gets mentioned in this podcast may very well elicit a comment like that, then send it my way. And I always interact with three or four Uh, comments that come in leading up to the accusation podcast every 10 episodes. They're always fun. It's always like a little grab bag instead of one topic that spans 20 minutes. It's like three or four topics that spans 20 minutes. So it's a fast moving podcast. One more thing before we get to the subject matter of today's episode, and that is thank you for reviews and ratings on iTunes. I appreciate it. As I mentioned before, still not 100% sure how it works, but I know it's a good thing. So if you have a minute, if you are using your phone or your computer or your tablet to access this podcast and you're utilizing iTunes, if you scroll down and tap on those stars, five would be great. Uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, Then that would be helpful for me and for the podcast. In 1980, on the morning of May 18th, after weeks and weeks of small tremors, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake shook Mount St. Helens, and that triggered the largest, most recent volcanic eruption in North America. 
And what happened and what is significant for today's podcast is that the surrounding area, a beautiful part of the Pacific Northwest, was covered in ash and debris and fire, and things were significantly altered. The mud flows, the hot gas, the scorched forests, all those things spread out for miles and miles around, significantly impacting the woods, the land itself, and the water. And for a fly fishing podcast, when we think about water, we're thinking about fish. And for certainly months and even years after the Mount St. Helens incident, there were waters that looked essentially barren. Uh, You can hear people talk about it looking like a moonscape. But something interesting happened. By 1990, fish were detected in Spirit Lake. Now, if you have an opportunity, Google Spirit Lake in relation to Mount St. Helens. This lake's elevation was raised over 200 feet immediately following the eruption of Mount St. Helens because the amount of debris and effectively the side of the mountain falling into the lake. It was completely devoid of life. Within 10 years, there were rainbow trout that were found in the water. And not only are there rainbow trout in the water today, but they grow at a remarkably quick pace. Now, Spirit Lake is closed to fishing because they're utilizing it as a living laboratory to analyze and assess the impact of not just volcanic eruptions, but significant uh, ecological disturbances on ecosystems. And so you can't go there and catch these giant volcano trout, but they're there. And I think that shows something very remarkable about nature and how nature and the natural world, whether it be something living like a fish or a macroinvertebrate insect or a mammal, is, or, or, or even just the landscape around it, has been hardwired to be incredibly resilient. I mean, you, you have a, a lake that was completely changed. It was effectively wiped off the face of the map, brought back on as something different and lifeless, and within a decade... It was showing signs of life, and here we are, uh, given it's over 40 years later, but 40 years is not a lot in the grand scheme of things of the world, and certainly after a volcanic eruption. Um, and you have fish, big fish swimming in it, uh, the, the, the rainbow trout, again, being probably one of the most prominent ones. So why are we talking about Mount St. Helens? Is there a volcanic eruption that's happening any day now? I'm, maybe, I don't know. But... We are, as this is being recorded, the middle of June in 2022, we are witnessing significant, dramatic flooding happening in Yellowstone. Why do I bring Mount St. Helens up? It's not to say, get over it, in 10 years, certainly in 40 years, everything is going to be okay. Because I don't know that. Nobody knows that. But the long track record of our observances of the natural world is that things get back to normal. So real quick, what's going on in Yellowstone? And, and wh- why Yellowstone? Why of, of all of the, um, you know, all of the ecological disasters, of all the floods, of all the things that we could be talking about, why focus on this one? I think it's because the United States has a very fond relationship with Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone, although not the first national park, is 
kind of like our 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 most famous national park. It gets a remarkable amount of tourism. It is kind of the highlight of the of the the West. Uh, it has a variety of ecosystems, and for fly fishers, it is a hotspot. It is a place that is just typifies Western fly fishing and wild Western fly fishing. So to see the imagery that's online, see the imagery that comes across on your phone, see what's coming across the evening news. It is upsetting. It is disturbing because it takes these picturesque, beautiful, meandering rivers and they've turned into muddy, overflowing torrents that are tearing roads and banks and houses from their foundations as it makes its way uh, downstream. So it is dramatic and it is disturbing for the natural ecological impact that's having, but also for the impact it's having on people. And you can't diminish either of those. They both matter. So uh, I was reading a number of articles on this, and this is where, like I said, I, th I thought I might give it a, a little bit of blowback. But uh, an article that uh, is in the New York Times, um, and there's so many articles that are, that are out there. And, and honestly, I haven't been reading a lot of things because very quickly it goes from what's happening. It gives like, you know, 5% of the article on what's happening. And then 95% of the article is like, why global warming is the reason for all this. Now, I'm not I'm not questioning that in the context of what I'm talking about right now. I'm just saying I want to know what's happening. I want to know what the cubic foot per second is. I want to know the economic impact that's had. I want to know the stories of the people who are on the ground. I I get it. The prevailing thought and notion is that this has some sort of connection to a changing climate. I get it. I think we all get that. No matter how we feel about that, no matter how we interpret the science, no matter any of those things, we know that is the narrative. Okay. But that's why I've been reading a lot of these articles because whether I agree with it or not, it's kind of frustrating to not get more details than that. So social media has actually been much more beneficial because you, you get to hear people's stories, people who are who are at Yellowstone, people who are actually watching this happen, and they're telling about their experience. Um, so anyway, back to this New York Times articles. There's a here's a quote from it. It says it is difficult to directly connect the damage in Yellowstone to a rapidly warming climate. Rivers have flooded for millennium. But scientists are raising the alarm that in the coming years, destruction related to climate change will reach nearly all 423 national parks, which are particularly vulnerable to rising temperatures. The litany of threats read like a biblical reckoning, fire and flood, melting ice sheets, rising seas, and heat waves. There's a little bit of irony in that last few statements, but that's not where I'm going to focus on uh, right now. But Notice that the beginning of that statement, it's difficult to directly connect the damage in Yellowstone to a rapidly warming climate. Rivers have flooded for millennia. It then directly shifts to, but it is because of climate change. And then uh, the statement that uh, national parks are more susceptible to rising climates, as if climate change is somehow aware of the borders that have been arbitrarily placed by the Department of the Interior. Now, if someone much smarter than me can let me know how that works, then please do let me know. Uh, I am I anticipate and I imagine what they mean by that is that areas that have been less developed have a greater biodiversity, are more protected, are also more fragile, and so if there is any sort of climate change or alter 
you know, alternating, uh, uh, you know, heat cycles or, or cooling cycles that are more dramatic than they were in the past, that these areas may be more susceptible to damage. I assume that's what they're saying. But the way that it's stated here in a couple other places I saw are a little bit misleading, almost as if like there, there's some sort of uh, uh, boundary based detriment that comes to a national park because it's a national park that like that's where the the angry global warming is going to come like al gore painted these you know didn't forgot to paint the the blood over the doorpost for for the uh, national parks but anyway what what that article says though i think is important for us to understand i'm again not debating questioning dealing with really uh the issue of climate change but the fact that it says it's difficult to directly connect the damage in Yellowstone to a rapidly warming climate rivers had flooded for a millennium needs to be in our heads. And as we have an emotional response to seeing these images, it needs to be in our hearts. Because I can think of some of the rivers that I have loved fishing for the last 20 years that if I read books that were published in the 90s, they talk about how these rivers were scoured out by ridiculous flooding from hurricanes or from other major flood events in sometime in the last couple of generations. I'm thinking of rivers in Pennsylvania that because of impoundments and, uh, and their failure had uh, huge flood events. I'm thinking of rivers in the Shenandoah that because of hurricanes uh, and the amount of water that came through, they, their courses were completely changed. Uh, very recently, I was in a, a river or a stream in Vermont, completely different location than it was just 15 years ago, but there are trout in it and they are thriving. And the reason is that the natural world is incredibly elastic. Now, you know, it's interesting. We kind of vacillate on these things. And as we think about our natural world and how we relate to it, we have to remember that things like floods and things like wildfires are actually helpful and beneficial in some ways. They have regenerative effects. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago that we tried to prevent wildfires with every fiber of our being. And then we realized that by preventing them, that when they did happen, because we cannot control it, that when they do happen, they are significantly more perilous, not just for human life, but also for the natural world because they burn faster and hotter and longer than if we allow them to happen on their own. It's just difficult for us to wrap our mind around the fact that things are supposed to die. Things are supposed to break for things to, to continue and be perpetuated. That's the way the world works now. And that's difficult for us. And so we try to stop it. We try to hem things in. We build corridors. We straighten and channelize rivers. We put out every tiny little forest fire. And then when something bad happens, then it looks even worse. I think one of the more dramatic images that we see in Yellowstone right now is as these rivers are, are raging and they are fast eroding along their banks, how these roads are plummeting by huge car-sized chunks into the rivers, and then the road itself is being swept away. Well, that makes sense. That is exactly what's going to happen if you build a road and all of the engineering that goes into building a safe, secure level road immediately adjacent to a river, that's precisely what's going to happen because you have this barrier that is is 
going to be eroded and the whole point of the barrier is to be not just load bearing but to channelize and control the river and so when as soon as the first chink in the armor is detected that's when things begin to fall apart not even five years before the eruption of mount st helens the big thompson river which flows out of uh, rocky mountain national park or estes park which is just uh, to the east of rocky mountain national park down through loveland colorado it flooded there was a uh, great loss of life and again the, the road got completely swept away now this is very different than what you see in yellowstone this is a very steep uh, mountain canyon with a river moving at a pretty good gradient down the entire way. It's a remarkable drive. It's a lot of fun. But uh, back in 1976, when this thing flooded because of uh, just too much rain and some uh, engineering issues that they had up in the impoundment up in Estes Park, uh, it led to loss of life. It led to massive destruction of property. And it led to a the river being just completely blown out. But guess what? I've caught fish in the Big Thompson River. Uh, you know, this was probably in the early 20, you know, early part of the 21st century. So we're talking about 25 years later after this happened. So again, this kind of gets back to the fact that we see these things. We lament the fact that there is destruction and damage and pain. We certainly, we certainly lament uh, the loss of human life. We can even lament the loss of animal life. I think it's even appropriate to lament the fact that non-sentient life, uh, plants, and uh, and just the ecosystem as a whole, is is destroyed. I think that's there's nothing wrong with that. To say something that that was once beautiful is now is now not beautiful um, is is okay. But we have to appreciate how quickly life rebounds. When it comes to plants and animals and fish and ecosystems, we can continue to, to, to mourn the loss of human life, but those other things, they come back and they come back so quickly. Now, here's where you may insert the caveat and you say, well, it's not going to be able to come back at all if, if climate change continues. And here's where I'm going to push back on that a little bit. If you have a worldview and you have a, a, a way of looking at everything that is bound up in an evolutionary model, whether it be Darwinism or some sort of neo-Darwinism or something completely different than that, um, then the species that would be now habitating in the, 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 the ecosystems that had changed, what's wrong with that? What's the problem there? What's the moral, the moral judgment that you can make on, well, this fish is gone and this fish is here? Why, why, why is the fish that's gone have any more right to be there than the fish that is now there, or the toad, or the bird, or something like that? Um, just, again, I'm not making any sort of judgment call or, or anything like that, but just from, from that worldview, as an ecosystem changes... Uh, what's what's the problem? You know what, what's wrong with that? It's it's great that there are you know fish that are moving their way up the the coast more now than they did before because of warming uh, you know ocean temperatures. Why not? You can say well because we're doing it. Okay, but if things are elastic and things are able to change, then then morally, what's wrong with that? So. I am not advocating pollution. I'm not advocating practices that would cause or would lead to climate change. 
I'm just saying that the, the the onus is on the person who's saying it's morally wrong for these animals to be where where they once were not uh, to to have to reckon with the fact that they're making a a moral statement about something like that. So, okay, that might have been a big kind of you know right turn off of what we're talking about. But these are things that are worth thinking about, particularly as you get fired up, you know. Does it, does it help to get fired up on on Facebook and leave comments uh, decrying practices of the Department of the Interior or uh, energy companies or you know a particular political party? Does that help, or does it help to maybe buy some flies from a fly shop in Gardner, Montana, uh, online just to give them a little bit of support? Buy a hat, buy a sticker, buy a T-shirt. Uh, does it help to? make plans to volunteer in some way in some sort of cleanup effort if you happen to live in Wyoming, Montana or something like that? Um, does it help to maybe go patronize the national park by you because in some way, shape or form, that money will make its way to the works that are inevitably going to be undertaken by the rangers and everyone else out in Yellowstone as the cleanup efforts uh, continue? Uh, my thought is that's probably a lot more valuable than getting in a, in a huff about things and, and not doing anything about it. But also know that the fish are going to come back. The fish will be there. If there are fish in Spirit Lake at the foot of Mount St. Helens, if there are fish swimming in the Big Thompson River, uh, there's going to be fish in Yellowstone. And the way that our media cycle works, you're not going to be thinking about the Yellowstone River next year. If you don't live in that valley, if you don't have property or a business or, or you were directly impacted, not directly impacted because your feelings got hurt because you saw pictures, but you weren't there, then you're not going to be thinking about this next year. Because think about the floods that happened last season. Can you name them? Can you think about them? Can you think about the, where the red tides happened and where, where all of the, you know, just uh, when was the last time you thought about what's happened in the Everglades? It's not in the news cycle right now. And I'm not saying that that is to our detriment. I'm not saying that is that is some sort of character flaw. It's just human nature. We move on to the next thing. And part of that is because things are elastic. Things are able to be rejuvenated. That's the way that things have been created. And we should be thankful for that. We should appreciate that. And so how can you channel those feelings, feelings that are relatively fickle, feelings that are kind of vapid in the sense that you're not going to be angry about the Yellowstone River floods in June of 2023. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll put money on that. So how can you channel those things today, knowing that they're not going to be gone, or they're not going to be around, I should say, uh, in, a, in a matter of months, or certainly in a matter of years? How can you channel them to be more helpful, more beneficial. So that's why I'd say buy a hat or a, a, um, a shirt from a fly shop that's in the in the Yellowstone area. Volunteer if you're close by. Visit a national park close to you. And be a responsible environmental steward. And be well-read. Read things. Point things out like I read in that uh, Yellowstone uh, flood article in the New York Times, which are almost contradictory and, and really based more on feelings than they are on hard science. Um, and, and even if they are right, the way they're worded is, is a little bit misleading and, you know, kind of is is charged to get people maybe moving. That's the optimistic way to look at it, or maybe just get people in a huff. And that's the pessimistic way to look at it. But let me know what you think. Uh, Matthew at castingacross.com. Again, the purpose of this podcast was not to make any sort of statement on any sort of ecological crisis or, or you know, prevailing theories or, or data on anything related to these issues. 
the point of this is how do we think about these things? Are we driven by winds of media narrative? Or are we driven by scientific research? Or are we driven by looking at things from a historical perspective and realizing that there's productive and unproductive ways to channel our energies and efforts? This week on castingacross.com, two articles. The first one is called Pulsa, Every Man's Strike Indicator. Pulsa, Every Man's Strike Indicator. Do you like pulses? I like pulses. What's a pulsa? A pulsa is a little foam strike indicator. It looks like a figure eight. It has adhesive on the inside. You pinch it on top of your fly leader or tippet, and it is a brightly colored little strike indicator. They're disposable, which you know some people might not like. Uh, but they work really well, and they're very subtle. They are not particularly wind resistant, which makes the casting relatively easy in comparison to some bigger, bulkier uh, strike indicators. But they're great. They serve a purpose. They are part of an armada of different strike indicators that I carry with me all the time. So I talk about five different things that I have learned about using pulses for you know 25 years. Nothing's remarkable. Nothing's revolutionary. But if you use them, maybe you one of those things will be new to you. If you don't use them, maybe this will show you the reasons or some of the reasons why you should consider carrying this you know two dollar and fifty cent sleeve of strike indicators with the thingamabobbers and the um, French indicators and other things that you happen to use on a regular basis. Wednesday's article was called Trout and Fire in the Tundra Part 2. This is a continuing narrative of fly fishing adventures and camping hijinks from, goodness, this must be 25 years ago. So I'm continuing to tell this story, and you can find the first part of the series through a link on Trout and Fire on the Tundra Part 2, which will take you to Trout and Fire on the Part under part one, or you can just find that on the website yourself. This week on the podcast, I'm going to recommend Old Town Canoes. Old Town Canoes are in Old Town, Maine, which is up there. And I know it's up there because I drove up there last week because I picked up my brand new canoe, the Discovery 133 in green. And I'm excited to use it this season for fishing and exploring and then this fall for duck hunting. It's an awesome little boat. Uh, I'll talk more about it inevitably in the coming weeks as I get a little bit more use out of it. And uh, I'm just excited for you to also hear about my boys' experience with it here in a few weeks when when they're on the podcast. But uh, Old Town is an awesome little place. I only spent about an hour there uh, up in Maine, but it is like, you know how in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they put the Ark away in that big warehouse, and then they start backing out and you see all the different crates of everything that's in, in the warehouse. Uh, it's like that only with canoes and kayaks. It's amazing. It's just like a really cool thing to see all these things uh, it lined up. And it's the smell is also really cool too. So, you know, you're talking about um, molded uh, plastic. If when I was a child, I would go to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago and they had these machines. I think they're called Moldoramas. Uh, they, they used to be all over the place. There's only a few places in the country where they still use them, but you put like a quarter in and it would injection mold using hot plastic, uh, a, a, an animal, and then it would cool for a second and then drop out. And the smell of that injection molded plastic, uh, from my childhood is exactly what I thought of when I walked into the old town factory, uh, which that is no reason to buy or not buy a kayak, but, uh, awesome American company. So many cool things. They have uh, great parts partnerships with their parent brand, Johnson Outdoors, so Minn Kota, Humminbird. So they are coming out with some really cool new things uh, that uh, I talked a little bit about in a 
an article that came out a few months ago talking about kayaks and canoes and their uses in fly fishing. But uh, if you're looking for a canoe or kayak, definitely check out Old Town. They're not the cheapest, but they are some of the best. And you'll hear that from people who have been using all sorts of canoes and kayaks for generations. And uh, you're hearing that from me for a relatively new canoe and kayak user. But if you want to check them out, I'll put a link to Johnson Outdoors uh, parent website as well as Old Town Canoe on the show notes for this podcast page over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.